Good morning. Good morning. You know, I am 67 years old. Now, now the only reason I tell you that, and I know it must be shocking to some of you, all right, is that we're going to be hearing from a 90-year-old. And so, you know, 67 isn't so bad, you know, 90, 67, or whatever, but you know what I'd like to uh, share with you is that a 67-year-old that has been connected with God for a while, I flat out had a meltdown last Monday. I'm just letting you know. You guys have been praying and you guys have been uh, asking God to heal me and to work and to do some amazing things. I, I know it. I do. I, I, I've received the phone calls and the cards and the emails, and I'm so grateful. But last Monday, I would just say it was wonderful and hard. I, I wasn't feeling sorry for myself, but, but I was so discouraged. I, I looked around, and, and the miracle that just happened, and I looked at our church, and I looked at our family, and I looked at other ministries that I was involved with, and it, and it just felt overwhelming to me. And, and I went to God. I, I took some of it out on Sharon. A little bit. But realistically, I was able to refocus. And I was able to see God in a whole and a new, fresh way. I missed last week. In my head, I wasn't supposed to miss last week. All right, I, I was supposed to be able, <laughs> no problem. And Dick Luazo came and shared his heart. And I was so grateful for his message. and so grateful for his availability. And as the week went on, and the journey, more challenging, demanding, recognizing that, that the enemy doesn't quit. I knew that my strength and my perspective only came from God. Now, I didn't live with Jesus for three years, and I haven't been a pastor as long as John has been a pastor. But, but John was in his 80s, and he was still filled with joy. He still wanted everybody that he met to be able to walk with his Jesus because it changed his life. How cool is that? That God was so real. His presence was so overwhelming. <laughs> when John wrote his gospel in the 80s, um, he wrote about Jesus. 
He wrote about Christ's life. And he didn't have memos or he didn't have cameras to remind him. It was well over 50 years since the resurrection and he wrote the Gospel of John. And as the Holy Spirit prompted his heart, put down exactly what we all needed to know about Jesus. John had walked with Jesus. He experienced both the joy and the suffering that a relationship with that Jesus brought him. John was a leader in the birth of the church, and he saw it grow, but he saw it mostly grow through persecution. He experienced the Roman oppression and the destruction of the temple. He saw his friends scattered and beaten and imprisoned and killed. Wow. John understood more than ever that by the time he finished the gospel, that Jesus was the only way Jesus was the only truth. Jesus was the only way. He wrote at the end of John chapter 20, verse 31, that he said, I I wanted to write everybody, not only to tell about who Jesus was, but to share with you that if you believe in him, that you will have life by the power of his name. He had seen transformations happen in hundreds, maybe thousands of people. Not only in his own life, he had experienced this, but he saw it happen. So a relationship with Jesus, his Jesus, had changed John's life forever. And walking with Jesus gave him joy. In spite of the circumstances, situations, government, heartache that he experienced. He desired to pass on this good news to his friends. And that's what 1 John's all about. So that's pretty cool. But not only did he desire to pass on all this to his friends, he wanted each one of us to realize how important it is to walk with Jesus and experience the joy that relationship brings. So what does John do? He writes some letters. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, while in his 90s, as I mentioned, he penned 1 John and 2 John and 3 John. But 50 years of being a pastor seasoned and refined John. I actually think it fired him up as he wrote this letter. You can tell he wrote to close friends, folks that he considered buddies. The recipients knew John well and trusted him. They also understood his rambling style, which two weeks ago, if you were with us, when I introduced this letter, I, well, I um, put it up and, and said it's more like a symphony. Where a symphony um, is a group of notes that continually play various themes and just keep coming back to the themes over and over and over again. It almost becomes redundant at times. But most people wrote letters, well, in a normal way. (laughs) John didn't. He didn't saw it as a treatise. He saw it as, I have to make sure 
And my friends and everybody else understand how wonderful this Jesus is. And I have to share with you that if you walk with this Jesus, it's not only going to be amazing, it's going to change your life, and it will give you life. That's the letter we're looking at. John doesn't have time to mince his words, maybe because of his age. He doesn't have time to compromise or to blur the lines. He's very black and white. And at the very end of 1 John, in chapter 5, verse 13, he says this, I want to write to all you who believe in the name of the Lord Jesus, those who are part of God's family, so that you know and experience the life that God brings. Last time we met, John introduced Jesus as the word of life. Today he's going to call God something different. And Dave started off in his introduction about light. But before we do that, let's pray. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity we have to gather to open up your word. I thank you for John. And, and Lord, in some ways we just wonder why did he not die a martyr's death like all the rest of the apostles? You kept him around. He stayed the course. He wrote a gospel, some epistles, and a revelation. And then eventually you called him home, Lord. So apparently these words are important, and these are words that you want us to hear. So open our hearts, open our minds. This day, Father, we pray for Paul and Anna Hill. They're church planters in Argentina. And God, they are in the same environment and world scenario that we're in. We pray you would encourage them and strengthen them. For churches that are around, churches that are in our neighborhood, churches who are teaching your word, we pray for the chapel, and we pray for connection, and we pray for fierce, and we ask you, dear God, that you would use your word in your disciples. We think of our kids' ministry, and all the faithful teachers that are downstairs, and the truths that they are learning we pray, God, that you would use your word to transform our kids. Encourage them to see you better and to trust you quicker. We love you, Lord, and dedicate our time to you. Open our eyes. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible... Um, you can read up on the screen, and we do actually have some Bibles in the back there that you're welcome to pick up and uh, to be able to use. First John chapter 1, we're going to start at verse 5. This is the message that we've heard from Jesus. And now declare to you, God is light, and there is no darkness in him at all. So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. But if we are living in the light, as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. 
But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. Let's go back to the first few verses. Verse 5, 6, and 7. And, and let's dig in a little deeper. I'm going to read it again. This is the message we've heard from Jesus. And now declare to you, God is light, and there is no darkness in him at all. So John writes, we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We're not practicing the truth. For if we're living in the light or walking in the light, as God is in the light, we have fellowship with each other. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. John starts off saying, I just want you to know the message I'm giving you is an old message. It's a message I heard literally from Jesus. And Jesus said this, God is light. And there is no darkness in him at all. God is light. Literally, if you want to look at this text and, and just translate, it says, darkness is not in him never. That's terrible English. But that's what John is trying to get across. God is light. This is a statement of the absolute nature and being of God. To say that God is light is to say that God symbolizes truth compared to darkness that symbolizes error. To say that God is light is to say that God symbolizes righteousness compared to darkness that symbolizes evil. God is light. And light dissipates darkness or evil or sin. Cannot coexist at all. John's statement about God actually makes a statement about sin. Our sin, your sin, and my sin, my rebelliousness, destroys fellowship with God, any relationship with God. That's why every week we talk about how gracious God is and how loving and how he pursues us and how he died on the cross so that he might pay the debt for you and me because sin has separated us. And if we put our faith in Christ and what he did on the cross, you are justified. Your sins are covered. He has forgiven you and you become a son or a daughter of God. And that's all amazing and wonderful. But that's your initial step. As you walk in life, there's times we rebel and times that we sin. And as we sin, we don't lose our salvation, but we break our fellowship with God. And until we confess our sin, which we're going to get to in a moment, we're apart. Because God is light. It's such a simple concept. It's black and white. And God cannot have fellowship with darkness. But as you're going to see, he provides a way. So, big sin, small sin, any sin, it breaks relationship or fellowship 
with God. And this is black and white to John. So Pastor John boldly addresses a blind spot because he knows the havoc sin causes and the obstacle it is to walking with God and enjoying God. Remember again, his whole desire, his whole hope, more than anything, is that his friends, his church, all of us walk with God and experience the joy that we can have being in fellowship with the Almighty. He wants us to do that. Well, as I said, he's rather black and white. And he says this, everyone is a liar who says they walk with God, but live or continue to live in darkness or sin. He's like, wow, whoa. Uh, <laughs> as a pastor or even as a teacher going like, couldn't we say it a little differently? We might have used the word or he could have used the word hypocrite. That still doesn't feel that good, you know. You're a hypocrite. If you say you walk with God, if you say you are in fellowship with God, but you have sin in your life, don't you get it? That sin, it makes you incapable of having this connection with God. Basically, these folks are deceiving themselves and denying the truth. Because you can't walk with God and have sin in your lives. And as I said, he's going to say this a few different ways because it's like a symphony. And John is passionate. And John wants to make sure that each one he talks to understands how critical this is. So John, make sure that we understand that God is light, God is holy, God is pure, God is incapable of compromise or grading on the curve. John then plays the same tune differently. If we have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, which cleanses us from all sins and are living in the light, if we are walking with God, we have fellowship with one another. Apparently, there was a problem in the early church, or at least in the church that he was at. And he saw this, and he addressed it. Now, as I shared with you, not last week, but the, the week before as we introduced First John, this letter was probably written from the town of Ephesus. And John's role back then was one of a pastor overseeing perhaps many different churches. Ephesus, as many of you know, is quite the church. It was a church that had a great reputation. It was a church that had some great pastors in it, all right? But if this is one of the churches that he's addressing this to, it becomes clear to us as we read a little bit in Revelation. Revelation was written a little bit later. And in Revelation, in chapter 2, verse 4, John says something about that church that's bothersome. He starts off in the first part of chapter 2, and he says, you Ephesians, you're working hard. You Ephesians, it's amazing. I love what you're doing. I love how you connect. In fact, I love how you study. You do. You know what truth is. 
But as you look up on the screen, it says, I, I have this one complaint against you. You don't love me, and you don't love each other like you did in the beginning of the relationship. You've lost that passion. You've lost it. You've lost the love for God that you used to have. You're kind of doing things remotely or rotely. And you've lost love for each other. Basically, John is telling this church in Revelation, rekindle your love for God, and then you can love your community. Which is somewhat what he's saying right here in 1 John. So John saw people saying they were loving God, but had no fellowship with their Christian brothers and sisters. This was incomprehensible to John. Because to John, the fruit of loving God, of walking with God, is koinonia. So many have heard that word before. Koinonia. Koinonia is community. Koinonia is body life. Koinonia is an association involving close mutual relations and involvement. Koinonia is doing Life together. Jesus also said, and we had mentioned that so much of Christ's last words from John 13 through about John 16, 17 are repeated here in 1 John. But in John chapter 13, verse 35, as he was sitting with his disciples, his last words, he basically said this, and it was really clear, didn't even mince his words here either. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Not your word, not your preaching, not your bumper stickers, none of those things. Your love, your sacrifice for others, your commitment to others, your serving others, others. People are going to see, you are crazy. Why do you care? Why do you forgive? Why do you love? Why do you serve? Why do you, why do you, why do you? Jesus said, well, your love for one another will prove that you really are following, obedient to me. And here's the hard part. John knew that his friends were deceiving themselves. The purpose of living in the light is not to produce individual mystics, but to arouse genuine fellowship among believers. This is important to John's overall argument that true spirituality is manifest in community fellowship. One cannot say he or she communes with God, walks with God, but then refuses to commune or hang or be in God's community, God's people. Let's look at 1 John chapter 1, and let's read verse 8, 9 and 10. So he comes back to this, and 
And again, actually, it just feels a little bit out of context, but we're going to talk about this. If we claim to have no sin, we are fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, coming back to it again, we're calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. If you just read that initially, if we claim we have no sin, we kind of dismiss those words. Because realistically, most of us know we're sinners. Most of us know we blow it. Most of us know, no, I'm, I would never claim that we have no sin. Some folks, again, think that this was maybe written to a group, at least in their first century, called the Gnostics, who claimed, well, they would be so godly that eventually they'd become more like God and more like God and more like God, and, and they wouldn't have sin or deal with sin issues. But in the context, I, I don't think John's addressing the Gnostics. I don't. I think in the context, John is saying this. He just got through again, verses 5, 6, and 7. If you are saying you are not in sin, if you are claiming that you are not in sin, the sin I'm talking about, the sin of you saying, hey, I walk with God, but realistically I have sin in my life and I'm not having fellowship with other brothers and sisters, it is clear that you are in sin because you're not in fellowship with others. You are only fooling yourself and not living in the truth. Or let me say it a different way. If we say we are walking with God, but do not have koinonia, fellowship with other brothers or sisters. We are fooling ourselves and not living in the truth because not having koinonia shows there is sin. And you can't have fellowship with God if there's sin in your life. You see, God is light. And not doing life with others is sin. If you choose not to do life with others or have grudges with the sheep, John says this in a very black and white fashion, you are fooling yourself and you are not living in truth. Now the good news follows in verse 7. We don't have to live separated from God. If we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all wickedness. Confess. The Greek word here basically means to agree or to say the same thing or to acknowledge, to admit our own sin, to repent and begin thinking the way God thinks about sin, about disobedience. Because really, every time we sin, what we're saying is, God, I know more than you. You have, well, told me not to do this, but I think it's okay to do this. Let 
repentance is agreeing with God about the transgression. And I often get this question, especially as a pastor, um, when you repent, when you confess, are there tears, are there emotions? And to be quite honest, I think personal emotions which accompany repentance vary. It really does. How long have you offended God? How many people have you hurt? What kind of actions follow? Sometimes there's deep anguish, there's tears, there's weeping, there's uncontrollable sorrow. Other times there's not. But realistically, God says, this is what happens. You need to agree with me. You need to recognize I'm Lord. You need to recognize that I'm the one who calls the shots. You're right, God. Scriptures tell us that God is faithful and God is just. In this context, forgiveness and reconciliation is seen as one act by God. John uses the word again, there's quite a few different Greek words for forgiveness, but this one has its root in the idea of cancellation of debts and the dismissal of charges. The restoration of a relationship can only happen if a person owns their offense. And when you do, your and my confessed sin is wiped out and all those blind spots are cleansed. Let me paraphrase this maybe. If we are characterized as those who are continually agreeing with God about our sin, both its nature and its acts. God is both faithful and just. He's true to himself to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all wickedness. Now John repeats his previous theme. If you claim you have not sinned, which John is saying, uh, yeah, which you really are because of your lack of fellowship, you're fooling yourselves. You are calling God a liar, and his truth or his word has no authority in your life. John was crystal clear. Fellowship with the Father means fellowship with community. So confess your sin to God and be restored. Confession demonstrates a positive response to God's life, light as he illuminates things in our life that show us our rebellion. We respond to it. Confession of sin is a sign that truth, which itself is light, has already begun to illuminate your and my sin-darkened lives. You see, a rich relationship with God means resolving conflicts. Conflicts with God and conflicts with each other. We spent a lot talking about conflict with God and confessing your sin to God. But there are three texts in the scriptures that I think every believer ought to be familiar with because these texts really talk about um, uh, resolving conflict. All right? And just like even in any family or any family here, is that we do have conflict. What does the Bible have to say about that? 
Can we go on the next slide, please? In these texts, and I'm going to actually go over a few of them and then actually read one. But in Matthew chapter 5, right in the Sermon on the Mount, one of Jesus' longest sermons, right snap, or, or right in the middle, in verse 23 and verse 24, Jesus says this. He says, if for some reason you're bringing a sacrifice to me, and you remember somebody has an offense against you, leave the sacrifice there. Go to that person, reconcile, then come back and offer the sacrifice. So if you know someone has something against you, you go to them. In Matthew 18, it's a little bit different bent. In Matthew 18, and, and this starts at verse 15 and goes quite a few different places, but Matthew 15 says, hey, if a brother sins against you, if you know someone has hurt you, you go to them. And you let them know. And hopefully there's confession. And there is reconciliation. The scriptures go on and say, hey, if that brother doesn't respond, bring two or three more with you. And if that doesn't work, then, well, bring the whole church. Because God is so passionate toward unity and reconciliation and to resolving conflict. And then what's really kind of cool is that Paul, and, and again, many of you are familiar with this passage, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, what happened in 2 Corinthians, actually, there's a few things that go on in the book of 1 Corinthians uh, and 2 Corinthians, and there probably were about four letters ultimately written to the uh, church at Corinth. But they were known for their wild living, and they were known for their lack of response to God. And Paul went in there and, and shared truth with them, and there was revival that happened. Well, in one of the letters, Paul had to get rather, well, in their face about their lack of response to God and their lack of repentance. And Paul actually writes about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And we don't have this letter. We don't. We either it's lost and the Lord said, hey, you guys don't need this in my holy scriptures. But in chapter 7, starting in verse 8, Paul writes this. I am not sorry that I sent that severe letter to you talking to the church, Though I was sorry at first, for I know it was painful for a while. In other words, whatever letter, whatever he wrote, he confronted some sin, and it really hurt them. It did. In verse 9, now I'm glad I sent it, Paul said, not because it hurt you, but because the pain caused you to repent and to change your ways. It was the kind of sorrow that God wants his people to have. So you are not harmed by this letter that I sent in any way. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and actually results in salvation. When you repent the way God wants you to, it leads to your salvation. So Paul writes, there's no regret for that kind of sorrow. For worldly sorrow which lacks repentance results in spiritual death. Now Paul is applauding this church, because it responded. Verse 11, 
Just see what this godly sorrow produced in you. Such earnestness, such concern to clear yourself, such indignation, such alarm, such longing to see me, such zeal, such readiness to punish wrong. You showed me that you have done everything necessary to make things right. Wow. When you've hurt somebody, when you've caused an offense to a person, to a group, to a church, a person that sees his sin correctly, confesses it, will do everything in their power to be able to make it right. You apologize to a lot of people. You recognize again that anything that you have done that is wrong, you own. And it takes a while to heal. You know, John didn't mince his words. His God-inspired words. You see, sin affects our relationship with God and with others. God expects us to walk with him and to walk with others and to do life together as a family. Has God inspired you this morning? Has, has God convicted you this morning? Are there some things maybe that you've nurtured that you ought to let go? Are there some grudges or some people who have hurt you or offended you that you need to talk through and talk with? So maybe God's inspired you to keep doing what you're doing or convicted you to do something that you ought to do or both. But I guess my prayer is this. Don't leave the same person this morning. Don't, don't do that. If God is working, act on it. Respond to it. You know, our text today, especially as we look at what John is trying to encourage, leads us to communion. We were supposed to have it last week, and actually we were even supposed to have it the week before. But this text leads us right to communion. And what I'd like to do at this moment is have you listen to what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church again in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 23. You can follow along on the screen and listen as it's being read to us. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup 
is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and some have even died. But if we would examine ourselves, we would not be judged by God in this way. Yet when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned along with the world. You know, the Corinthian church took this Lord's Supper thing and went crazy. They ended up drinking too much. They ended up abusing different kinds of people. And, and Paul just reminded them, say, hey, hold it. The, the whole purpose of communion is to be able to, first of all, reflect. We're going to have a quiet time in just a moment. And, and that time is to really say, Lord, what is it that's in my life that's offending you? Because sin is, first of all and foremost, against God. Maybe it's, God, is there somebody that I have a broken relationship with? Maybe it's right here in this church. Maybe it's under your roof. Maybe you need to, during that even quiet time, as, as our worship team will be coming up here, and, and during our reflecting and during our quiet time, singing through, I guess, a meditation. But maybe, and, and if I could, I'd even like the house lights down as low as we can so that nobody trips or whatever. But, but if we could, and, and during this reflection time, as you talk to God, if there's someone you need to go talk to, do it. Someone you need to text, do it. Someone you need to go make a phone call, do it. Do it. Make it right. Make it right. And then spend some time remembering what Jesus did because of our sin his body was broken and because of our sin his blood was shed and it's hard not to rejoice and not to say thank you God I don't deserve that thank you thank you thank you so the purpose of communion again, is to help us stay in tune with God. Deal with anything that keeps us from God. And to thank God for all that he's done for us. So as I pray, we're just going to let you think and let you respond to God. In a little bit, I will come back up and we'll take the elements together, okay? Father, we do come before you.
and we recognize your amazing love for us. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for coming. Thank you for giving us a way to restore a relationship with you and even to restore a relationship with others. You saw it so important in the early church, and you see it important today. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name. at his disciples, those who were God followers, those that loved him. <laughs> I know this sacrament, shall we say, or this group of elements has taken on different meanings in our world. Perhaps even thinking that you might attain salvation as a result of it. That's not why Jesus did it. He said, you're my followers. I want, I want you to remember. I want you to reflect. I, I, this is so important. I hope you're overwhelmed with my mercy and my grace because I shed my blood so that you might be redeemed. Let's drink. We thank you again, dear God. We have no idea of all you've done and even why you did it. But we do know this. You love us and you desire a relationship with us. May we stay close to you and close to each other. We love you, Lord.
just receive our worship today. In Jesus' name.